Uh, my name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here. And if you are the proud owner of a middle or high school student, I want to remind, there you go, one of you is willing to admit. One of you is willing to claim your children. Uh, we, I just want to remind you guys that our Bible studies, having been closed for spring break, will restart this week. We have three here at the Stafford campus, one for high school young men, one for high school young ladies, and one for middle school students. We have one Monday nights at our Fredericksburg campus for middle school students. We have one Tuesday nights at Miss Courtney's house for young middle school ladies, and then we have one Thursday night is here as well for high school students. So you won't remember any of that. But I'll be at that circular desk following service, and you can say, hey, you remember that stuff you told me when I was supposed to be paying attention, but I was checking my bracket? Can you tell me all, can you tell me all that again? And I will say yes, and then I'll just make fun of you on the way home, but you'll never know, so we can still be friends. There you go. So, uh, with all of that said, we are going to primarily be coming, are you ready for this? We are going to primarily be coming out of John chapter 12, chapter 13, Chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17. And I know all you just heard, all you just heard is, man, we are going to be late to the restaurant. <laughs> but we are going to make sure that does not happen because we are going to blaze through it. We are going to fire through because as those of you that were here last week know, we're in a series about Jesus's final week on earth, which his final week, in my opinion, leads to the most important weekend in human history. Uh, we call it Easter, or as I like to call it with the students, the weekend that God allowed himself to be executed and refused to stay dead. And this is the weekend that we celebrate, and this is where we decide who is Jesus, who he says he is. Because if you believe that that happened and Jesus predicted his own death and his own resurrection, you're left with the conclusion that he is the son of God as he claims to be. And if you don't believe that, you probably don't believe he's the son of God. And whichever side you fall on that, it has profound impl implications for the rest of your life because it challenges everything, morality, philosophy, purpose, existence, eternity, how you answer the question, who is Jesus, is the most important question that you answer. And so we start where Adam left off. He was talking about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and that was a wild scene. There were people already there for the Passover festival, and Jesus was already as popular as he was ever going to be. There's people that have heard about his other miracles, and they want to get near this guy that can do amazing things. But shortly before he enters into Jerusalem, he goes to his friend's Lazarus funeral, who's dead. And he says, hey, Lazarus, come out of your tomb. And Lazarus does. And there's a huge crowd of people there. And they're telling everybody else, this guy called his friend out of the grave. And so there are people going, he did what? And they want to see this man that calls people out of tombs and they listen. This has gotten to be such a fervor that the people that want to kill Jesus already now also want to kill Lazarus. Because they're like, hey, this has created a big stir. They're praising him. They're saying he's something that he's not. And a big part of it is because that guy is still alive. So maybe if we kill him, they'll quit pointing at the guy that Jesus called out of the grave. And so he goes in and people are throwing branches down and coats down and praising him and singing his songs. And there's a big group of Jews and not Jews and people that hate Jesus. And they're all making this big, big thing. 
And here's what Jesus says to the people that want to get a glimpse of him or, or want to come up to him and are trying to talk to him through his disciples. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So generally after a big procession where people are honoring you and worshiping you and crying out to God on your behalf, generally the people that receive things like that say something like, hey, thank you guys for coming out. It meant a lot to me. Or they say something like, hey, the next place I'm going to be is the temple. You might want to come hear me teach there too. But not Jesus. He turns around and says, hey, I'm a kernel of wheat. And unless I die, thousands of seeds don't get planted. And then he doubles down on that and says, any of you that says you're gonna follow me, guess what you're gonna have to do with your life as well? You're going to have to lay it down. And nobody gets this. Nobody connects the kernel of wheat and the seeds and the follow to lay your life down. And, and honestly, how could they? Least of all his disciples. You would think the ones that had been with him the most could maybe follow this teaching, but you have to understand, they don't have a category for God failing. Remember what they've watched in their time with him. They literally just saw Jesus pull their friend out of the grave. They've watched him cast out demons, so they know the supernatural world is subject to him. They've watched him tell storms to go away, so they know the natural world is subject to him. They have watched him feed thousands and thousands of people with bread and fish from a boy's lunchbox. They don't have any idea, any way to connect these dots that Jesus is talking about his death. So they might wonder what it's about, but they could never land on this conclusion. So the irony of this scene is that Jesus is the only person in this crowd of people that knows that these are his final moments. He's the only person around all of these people that knows that his death is intimate because the, the disciples are like, what, it can't mean that he's about to die because no one can take down our guy. And they're right, no one can take down our guy. But he's about to give his life away. And so he knows these are his last moments and we know something about final moments. Death is what makes life so precious. Our knowledge that we will at one point not exist is what makes the moments that comprise our life so valuable. And I would say that the closer we get to that realization, the more important those moments come. And I'm not gonna be cavalier about this, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I am gonna be a little bit tongue-in-cheek to make a point. When you're at your loved one's deathbed, you are not scrolling through your phone. You're not doing it, because the moment is there. There's only a few of them left and you are dialed in. You are intently listening. You're saying the things that can't be left unsaid and you're hearing the things that that person needs to say. You're holding the warm hand for the last few moments that you can because you know there's a limited amount of time that at hand will still be warm. We have charities that are designed to make the most of these last moments. One of the functions of Make-A-Wish 
is to help families that have someone with a terminal diagnosis make the most of those last moments. And I have to imagine on these make-a-wish trips, nobody's arguing about who gets the last pancake or who gets to drive shotgun. Nobody's arguing about that stuff because that's not important. Death has a way of purifying our interactions. It has a way of shuffling all the nonsense that we bicker about or all the nonsense that we spend our lives on down to the bottom and say, hey, in these last few moments that I have, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna take care of the important stuff. And it's never who gets to ride passenger. It's always something that needs to be done or an emotion that needs to be expressed. And this is where Jesus finds himself. And this is what we're going to explore today through those teachings is Jesus' last moments alive with his disciples. But before we do that, we're gonna pray because we're not just reading this for reading comprehension. There's not gonna be a test at the end where if you get more than eight out of 10 right, you pass. We are about literal spiritual revelation. And that can only come through the Holy Spirit, so we're gonna ask for that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us, and most of all, we thank you for your spirit through which we can understand the teachings you're about to deliver. Please let us fall short of nothing but radical spiritual transformation and let our minds and hearts be changed and transformed by your teachings by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. So again, they're in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and they're about to go have a meal. Again, the disciples just think they're going to dinner. Only Jesus knows that this is the final meal. And so they sit down and they're taking the meal, which these young Jewish men would have done hundreds of times in their lives at this point. They would have eaten dinner. They would have done festivals. They knew the feast by heart. Everybody knows how to eat together at Jewish festivals because they are well-practiced. And that is why what Jesus does next is so odd. In the middle of the meal, Jesus gets up and he does this. He takes off his outer clothing and wraps a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Emphasis on the question mark. Peter is making sure that he's seeing what he's seeing. This is a very skewed power dynamic as is any room that Jesus tends to be in. He is the power in the room. He is the king. When your nickname is king of kings and your other nickname is lord of lords, you don't wash feet. You tell people who are kings to have their servants wash feet. This is a gross power dynamic in Peter's mind. He's like, you are not touching my filthy feet. Jesus tries to teach Peter by responding, you do not realize what I am doing now, but later you will understand. He says, hey, take a deep breath. I'm about to explain it to you, but you have to go along with this. But Peter digs in. He says, no, and he draws a line in front of the Son of God, which is hilarious. He draws a line in front of Jesus and says, no, you will never wash my feet. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And and Peter says, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter knows this is all off. He knows who's supposed to be doing this job. Servants are supposed to be doing this job. And he says, no, you're not touching my gross feet. 
We'll do all of me. We'll create a new custom. The king of kings and lord of lords is not doing the job of a servant. And Jesus says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? So he re-robes, he sits back down at the meal, and he wants to make sure that they have clearly seen what it is he's trying to teach them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. He says, Peter, you have correctly ascertain the power dynamic. You are right to be uncomfortable because that is not how people use power. The people with power don't come down from their high horses and wash other people's feet. You were right to feel uncomfortable, but I want you to see why it is you were uncomfortable and I want you to know what I'm asking you to do. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, now that the greatest good that has ever existed has done the lowest job available at the time, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you as an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He says, you are correct to be troubled by this because this is new to you. But this is what I demand of you, to behave as I behave. You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and you are right. You call me the greatest good that has ever existed, and you are correct. You call me king of kings, and I wear that because I'm the only one able to wear it. And I disrobed, I got on my knees, and I washed your feet. And if you are going to follow me, that is what you will do too. You will not follow me to corner offices, and you will not follow me to trophy podiums. You will follow me in doing the things that other people are unwilling to do for the people that I love. This is what it means to follow me. And he leaves them no out because he says, you correct in saying that I'm teacher and Lord. And now you have seen what I have done. And this is a huge bomb. Because it changes everything, right? We, we think that leaders exist to be served and, and God says, no, leaders exist to serve. And that's not even close to the biggest bomb that he is about to drop on them. The dinner continues and he says, hey, one of you guys is about to betray me. And this again, like all of a sudden the feet washing thing, which is huge, is like gone. Like, oh, you're gonna betray me? Like, who, who is it? Who is it? He goes, the one that I give this bread to. He gives the bread to Judas, and he sends him on his way. He says, go do what you got to do. So Judas gets up, and he leaves. And after Judas is gone, Jesus drops this little nugget. My children, I will only be with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Uh, excuse me? Like, Okay, we're still wrapping our minds around washing each other's feet and trying to hope to God that's a metaphor and you don't actually expect us to touch each other's feet. But now you tell us that you're going away and we can't follow? Wasn't your call follow me? Didn't you show up while I was perfectly happy pulling fish out of the water and say, hey, leave your life and follow me? Now, three years later, you're saying, oh, by the way, you can't do that now? 
Like, we gave up our lives. We gave up our livelihoods. Like, you remember the other guys? You said, follow me, and he said, no, I got too much money. I can't roll with you. And you said, follow me to another guy, and he said, no, I got to bury my dad. Like, there were people you said, follow me, and they said, no, I'm not down with that, and they went back to their lives. We're the ones that said yes. And now you're saying Hey, I'm, a, I'm about to go away. And yeah, by the way, the people that want to kill me, they probably want to kill you too. But uh, good luck with that? Like, this, this is not okay. So it's, it's, it's Peter again. It, it always seems to be Peter. He asks him, Lord, where are you going? Which I always interpret as a really fancy way of being like, explain yourself now. Like, I, you know, when there's an authority figure, you have to phrase your, your words carefully, Right? So he says, hey, where, where are you going? I, I always interpret that as Peter saying, uh-uh. Like, you're, you're gonna have to, to explain. I realize you just lit me on fire about the feet washing thing, so I'm a little bit timid here. But explain yourself now, Jesus. So he does. Where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. I promise I can go where you're gonna go. I am willing to put my life on the line. And Jesus answers, will you really lay down your life for me? Because truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He says, really, guy? You gonna step to me on this? Well, let me tell you, you ain't even gonna make it past this night. You're gonna tell three different sets of people, before that rooster welcomes the sun up, you're gonna tell three different sets of people that you don't even know me. So let's pump the brakes on laying down your life, big dog. (laughs) Because you're not there yet. But Jesus, ever loving, continues to explain. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place that I am going. He says, guys, have some faith. Like you've been with me all these years. Don't freak out. I'm going away, but I'm not abandoning you. I'll come back. And besides, You already know where I'm going. Then Thomas asked one of the greatest questions that I've ever heard phrased. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Perfectly responsible question. He says, Lord, you gotta give us something. You gotta give us the way to get there. We don't need to know the destination. You gotta give us the way to get there. The destination can be a surprise. I'm great with that but you gotta give us the road or you have to give us the destination so we can figure out what the road is. But you can't not give us the road and not give us the destination. He says, at least tell us where you are going so that we can know the way. And then Jesus answers, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's done using metaphors. There's no more kernels of wheat. There's no lost coins or lost sheep or prodigal sons. He says it as clearly as he can. I am the way. I am both the path and the destination. 
I am the treasure map and the treasure. Thomas, you have everything that you need and everything that you would ever desire three feet from your face. Because he is being literal. I am the way. And this is the cornerstone of his teaching throughout this entire passage. He is continually referencing himself as the foundation. Remember back when we started in 12, he says, I am the kernel of wheat that produces a thousand seeds. And then when he washes feet, he says, I am the example of how you follow me. And then now, when they're concerned about him going away, he says, I am the way. And then when they're worried about what that might mean in terms of victory and defeat, he says, I am victory personified. You do not have to worry when you roll with me because I'm the baddest lion in the jungle. The power dynamic that you were so concerned about 15 minutes ago, rest in that because I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life, and he continues to reference himself as he teaches. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He says, love one another the way that I have loved you, because nobody loves like I love. How I love is countercultural. It gets attention without ever trying to take attention. You saw the washing feet thing. You see the laying. You have no idea what's coming next, but I'm about to tell you. But when you live like I live and when you love like I love, that's when people will look and say, I know who he belongs to because I'm following the one who God sent. And lest there be any confusion, he doubles down on this and says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. He says, nobody does it like I do it. No one does it to the extent that I do it. No one does it with the power that I do it. And when you do it like I do it with my power, people will know that you are mine. This is how you take the light into the dark world so that people can look at your good deeds and give glory to the Father. But he knows that runs countercultural. He knows that is a supernatural, sacrificial love. So he doesn't leave them with the command without the means to fulfill the command. Several times in this final dinner, he teaches things like this. He says, all of this I have spoken while I am with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I said to you. I summarize that. I read that one and I summarize the rest. No fewer than four times he talks about sending the Spirit. And he says different things. Like the Spirit will remind you of all the things that I have said. And the Spirit will give you messages from the Father. And the Spirit will empower you to do the works that I did. And he promises them. He says, you will do even greater works than I did through the power of the Spirit. He summarizes the teaching in chapter 16 by saying, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. He says, it's better that the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords is not here. It's better that I leave 
Because you receiving the advocate is better than me being in a fixed location. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have so much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. And he's, he's already said a lot. We have read about 35 verses, and I've summarized about another 21. So we together, just this morning, have gone through 50-something verses on this final teaching, and, and we know why, because the moments are limited, and he's pouring it out on them. He's saying, this is the important stuff. Flush away all the non-important. Here's the stuff you need to hear before I go so that you can hold faith in what will be the darkest time in your life before that light comes back out of that tomb. He says, this is what you need to hear me say, and it's not even a grain of what I want to say to you. And I already feel like we've been drinking from the fire hose. He says, and that's not, that's not even a port. That's, not, that's nothing compared to what I want to give you. But you can't bear it right now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He'll give you all that I can't give you right now. He will be with you to the end of days. He will be your mechanism by which I reveal my righteousness to you. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. In his final moments, Jesus highlights himself again. The love that he has shown him and probably most importantly, the power by which he has lived his life. He says, here's what life looks like when you say, follow me. And here's the power by which you actually make that happen. The advocate known as the Holy Spirit. And rest assured, the Holy Spirit is present throughout Jesus' entire life here on earth. Scripture tells us he's there at the moment of conception. Then it says he grows in wisdom and stature by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then at his baptism, the spirit in the shape of a dove descends on him. And then it says he performs miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings Jesus back out of the grave. He says, the same way that I lived my life, loving others by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the way that you live your life. And so after teaching him all of this, he prays. He prays for the ones at the table. And I would, I would suggest that you read the whole thing. It's in John 17. It's a lot of good stuff in there. And he prays for the, the 11 that are still at the table. He says, Father... Please help them to be one as you and I are one. He prays for a supernatural kind of unity. And as he's closing that prayer, he prays for you and me. He prays for you and me some 2,000 years ago. And this is what he says. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He prays that we as brothers and sisters are as unified as he is with the Father and the Spirit. And why does he pray that? What's the benefit of that unity? So that the world may know 
that God has sent Jesus. This is the teaching of his final moments. He says, love as I have loved you and I have shown you how to love. By the power that I give you, do these things. As unified with your brothers and sisters as I am with the Father. In his final moments, he lays out the plan specifically, without question, with no metaphors. He says, this is how people will know that you are mine. Because you do it like I did it. By the power that I did it by. As unified with your brothers and sisters as I am with the Father. He says, I am the example. Do not deviate from the example. And he prays that with confidence. Notice he didn't say in the prayer, hey, if the disciples do a good job, then we're gonna have some people that believe. And so I pray, just in case the disciples do a good job, that some of those people are unified and their unity is a testimony to how great I am. He doesn't pray that. He says, I pray for those who will believe by the power of these who you've given me testimony. And you know why he can pray that prayer? Because while we are invited to participate in telling the darkness about the light, we are not the critical variable in that equation. If nobody chose to take up that mantle, if nobody chose to love how he loved, if nobody chose to do it by the power of spirit, and if nobody chose to be unified, he would still win. He is the victory. The most important figure is at the table. You wanna unpack this dream team at this last dinner? Let's unpack this dream team, the 12 men that he shared his final evening with. There's about four or five that we know a little bit about. One was a rebel, but not much is said about them. The four that get the most press are fishermen, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. These are the fishermen. These are the guys that were doing something different. And he said, no, you come do this. Well, what we know about them is the fact that they were fishermen meant they weren't rabbis, which to you means nothing. But to Jewish culture meant everything. Rabbis were our doctors, lawyers, and athletes. They're what every kindergartner wrote down on the little card, what do I want to become? I want to become a rabbi. And you tried, and you tried hard, and you memorized things, and you went, but at a certain point, a rabbi would either refuse to take you on or you'd be sent home from Hebrew school, and they would say this, Go and ply the trade of your father and pray that your sons grow up to be rabbis. So basically, they did the American sports dad prayer. You weren't good enough to make it to the big leagues, but heap all those expectations on your son and crush him with that. This is, this is them. They're the Hebrew school dropouts. And they're the best of the bunch. He's got another guy at his table named Matthew that collected taxes from the Jews to give to the Romans. Think about how much you love paying taxes. Multiply that by one million. Exactly. These guys were traitors. They were enemies. They were taking Jewish wealth and giving it to Roman oppressors. They were hated. You remember, Jesus sits down and eats with tax collectors and the religious elite say, why does your rabbi eat with these people? These are terrible people. 
Well, Jesus not only eats with one, he puts one on his team. But that's not the worst guy at the table. The worst guy at the table has got to be Judas. Like he takes a guy on his team that is literally going to sell him. That's the last round draft pick. Like, hey, you know how I'm going to build my dream team? I'm going to get somebody that will ultimately turn me over to the authorities for like almost no money. And he does this. He puts these men around the table. He chooses the foolish to confound the wise so that you and I are out of excuses. So that you and I don't get to say things like I don't have enough talent or I don't have enough time or I don't have enough energy or I don't have enough fill in the blank. Because you don't need to bring anything. Nothing that you bring advances the cause of Christ one millimeter. And while that might hurt your feelings, I hope it hurts your feelings in the best possible way. Because only God takes new ground. It is only by the power of the Spirit that the blind see and the deaf hear and people that were in the darkness go, I now see the light. He asks nothing from you except what he asks from them. Follow me. Follow me as I love. Follow me by the power that I love and follow me in the unity. And this is spectacular because everyone can do that. Not everyone can dunk a basketball or run a 4-3 or get a perfect score in the SAT. That's a pyramid. That's the top 1%. Everyone can metaphorically wash feet. Everyone can choose to forgive and be unified. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord receives the Holy Spirit. There is no socioeconomic classification. There is no talent barrier. Victory personified invites us into redemptive history, invites us from our life of meaningless. When we could not help ourselves, when we jacked up his creation and could not put it back together, he says, I got you. Not only do I got you, I call you a friend. And not only do I call you a friend, I give you the Holy Spirit to show that you are mine and I give you the battle plan, lest you get it confused, a battle plan that anyone would carry out if they would only be willing to answer the question, follow me with a footstep. This is what he asks, that we see him as he is, King of kings, Lord of lords, servant and follow him as he walks. Respond to him and the goodness that he is. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your spirit. We thank you for sending your son and we thank you for loving us and we're thankful that the victory rests on your faithfulness and not our faithlessness. When we get it wrong, when we get the to-do list in front of the who do I serve list, let us pack it back up in the bag and let us love how you loved by the power that you love in the unity that you provide through the Spirit. Let all the nonsense that divides fade away and let what only be left is a group of people we call the church committed to calling those in darkness into the light. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.